0: This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online, offline platform that we've created to help you put into action all the things we've been writing about and talking about on the podcast, The Art of Manliness, for the past 10 years. We've created over 50 badges based around 50 different skills from the hard skills like wilderness survival, camping, fighting. We also have soft skills on there like personal finance, salesmanship, entrepreneurship, how to be a good host, etc. Besides that, we have tools that help you hold yourself accountable for your fitness goals. We provide you with weekly challenges that are going to get you outside of your comfort zone. We also provide ways for you to get to with other TSL members in person to do stuff together because we're big believers in in in-person social interaction. If you want to get on the waiting list for our next enrollment, head over to strenuouslife.co read all about what's going on at Strenuous Life, see some testimonials. And if you scroll down to the bottom, put your email and you'll get an email as soon as enrollment opens up again this March. So get on it, strenuouslife.co and sign up today. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Have you been stuck in a rut for a while? Have you been there for so long you feel like there's no use in trying to get out of that slump? Maybe you even start telling yourself things can never get better, this is just the way things are. Is there even a point to all of this? And as you ruminate over these questions over and over, you feel more and more depressed and maybe even start to feel a bit resentful. Resentful Resentful towards others, resentful towards towards life itself. (laughs) Well, my guest today says that perhaps the way you start to get out of that rut is to clean your room, bucko. His name is Jordan B. Peterson. I've had him on the show before. Check out episode Number 335 if you haven't heard it yet. Peterson is a psychoanalyst and a lecturer. And he's got a new book out called 12 Rules of Life, An Antidote to Chaos. Today on the show, Dr. Peterson and I discuss why men have been disengaging from work and family and why his YouTube lectures resonate with so many modern men. We then unpack why it's so easy to get resentful about life before spending the rest of the conversation discussing rules and guidelines that can help you navigate away from resentment and towards a life of meaning. Dr. Peterson explains why he thinks a meaningful life isn't possible without religion or myths, or what lobsters can teach us about assertiveness and why a simple act like cleaning your room can be the stepping stone towards a better life. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash rules of life. And Dr. Peterson joins me now via Skype. Jordan Peterson, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much for the invitation.
0: So we had you on the show about five months ago kind of talk about your work in general and your ideas and what you're trying to do. And I'd encourage people to listen to that episode to get a big picture view of what what Jordan's doing. You've got a new book out, 12 Rules of Life, Antidote to Chaos. So I'd like to get into some specifics this time, kind of build off what we talked about last time into more specifics and talk about what you do in the book. This podcast is The Art of Manliness. So I want to start off with this. Your primary audience tends to be men. I think you've mentioned in interviews that about 80% of your YouTube viewers are male. What do you think is going on there? Why do you think men are so drawn to your message?
1: Well, I'm not sure. It, it could be just a side effect of the fact that the most of the YouTube users are actually men. So there's that's playing a role. Although, And so it's hard to separate out that basic baseline fact from whatever more specifically might be going on. But I think that assuming that there is something specific that is attracting men. I think that what it is, is a call to responsibility, essentially. I think that people are, especially young men, are sick and tired of being fed a constant diet of, you're good enough, you should feel happy with who you are, Um, an endless diet of rights and freedoms will give you a meaningful life. And that's that's on the sort of pat you on the back, even though you don't deserve it, side of reality. And then there's the lack of call to adventure, I would say, and the accusation that men face increasingly that their active presence in the world does nothing but contribute to tyranny and oppression, which I think is absolute, it's not only nonsense, it's it's pernicious and destructive nonsense of the worst kind. And so, you know, I've been telling men instead or suggesting to them, explaining it more than telling, that it's necessary for them to grow up and get their act together and to adopt some responsibility and to bear a burden and to speak truthfully and to take responsibility because there's important things to do in the world and that the world will be a lesser place if they don't allow what's within them to come forward. And I think that that's true. And so I think that that's a message that reasonable young men who are somewhat lost are desperate for.
0: So. If- Men aren't getting this message. Why? We've had people on the podcast discuss how, you know, different economists, psychologists, sociologists discussing how men are dropping out of public life, dropping out of school, the workforce, et cetera, not getting married and, you know, doing all that stuff. Why do you think that message that you think is getting passed on to men through the culture is causing men to basically withdraw from society?
1: Well, if you're not going to be rewarded for your virtues and instead you're going to be punished for them, then what's your motivation to continue, especially when it takes a fair bit of effort to say truthful things and to shoulder responsibility. And if the consequence of that, so there's there's reason to avoid it to begin with, just as a consequence of the difficulty. But if the net effect of doing that is that you're accused before you even do anything wrong of being a, an upholder of rape culture and the patriarchal tyranny and the oppressive West, then why in the world would you want to contribute to that, especially if you start to believe it? You know, some of it's just a matter of accepting excuses and and taking the easy way out, but some of it's a matter of becoming guilty enough to actually believe it, withdrawing from active engagement in the world. The people who are going after masculinity, let's say, as toxic, can't distinguish between tyrannical power and competence. In fact, for them, there is no distinction between those two things, which shows you just how addled they really are, because it's extraordinarily important to discriminate between competence and power. You know, and the postmodern types, especially the neo-Marxists think, oh, well, competence, that's just how you justify your claim to your position. It's really just power. You're just defining competence in a way that benefits you. But that's idiotic. So it doesn't really require much of an argument. And certainly no one ever acts like that. If you have a car and it doesn't work, you take it to a competent mechanic. If you if your father's heart is failing, you take him to a competent surgeon and you don't think, oh well that person is just there because of the you know the Western patriarchy and the privilege of of the oppressor. So it's nonsense. It's resentful, cowardly, ideologically possessed, pathological nonsense and it's extremely dangerous. And so I've been saying that about as bluntly as I just said it. And I think that more and more people are realizing that it's gone far enough. I'm sure hoping they are.
0: So one of the other dangers too, of this sort of resentful attitude that you're talking about is that the, the men who do withdraw, or even just people who withdraw, it could be a woman yeah. too, they tend to, it tends to lead to nihilism and resentment themselves, right? They withdraw... And it starts to fester. I mean, what's going on?
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is, the thing about life is very difficult. Life. There's an old, one of the most ancient of religious ideas that and emerges everywhere. I would say is that life is essentially suffering, and what that means is that while people are fragile and vulnerable and mortal and prone to physical decay and mental illness and to a fair share of malevolence as well, we're fragile creatures. And that means that life is hard and painful and anxiety provoking. And you need something to set against that that's worthwhile. And that's that's your destiny in the world, say your positive destiny in the world. And if you don't have something positive to set against that, and your life is nothing but struggle and pain and with with the occasional foray into malevolence or victimization by malevolence then all you do is suffer stupidly and that makes you bitter and resentful and then you know that's just the beginning of your trouble because bitter and resentful that's just where you start the descent into hell you know you go from bitter and resentful to vengeful and to and to cruel and 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 way past that if you really want to pursue it and and people pursue that all the time it's not like it doesn't happen It's not like this is some abstract dream. All those high school shootings, all these mass shootings, they're all carried out by people who've walked down that road a very long distance. I wrote about that in Chapter 6. Rule 6 is called Set Your House in Perfect Order Before You Criticize the World. And it's about the motivations of people like the Columbine high school shooters and the mass rapist, the serial rapist, Carl Panzram, who features very heavily in that chapter and it's a meditation on people's motivation for for evil which is which exists in all of us and and no wonder like it, it's understandable but that doesn't make it right so the book 12 rules for life is a very serious book there's there's elements of humor in it but you know i'm trying to struggle with things at the deepest possible level and to explain to people why it's necessary to live a upstanding and noble and moral and truthful and responsible life and and why there's hell to pay if you don't do that. So that seems to be bizarrely enough an attractive message. <laughs> <laughs> Tell
0: people life is hard and here's how to handle it.
1: Well, that's it. Well, there. everyone knows life is hard. And it's not just hard, it can be unbearably hard. And and it's it's worse than hard because sometimes the hardship is inflicted upon you by yourself or by someone close to you, or or sometimes by an enemy, or but sometimes by a friend, you know, you get betrayed. And it's not just that it's hard. You're you're also subject to evil. You're subject to malevolence. And that makes it even worse. And And everyone knows this. And so you need something to set against that. You need a noble way of being to set against that. And the thing is, you know, all of everything I've said so far in this program, I would say in some sense is very dark and pessimistic, you know. But what's optimistic is that Having established the truth of the matter, the suffering of life and the malevolence that's part of it, you can also discover that living a meaningful life in the face of that, a responsible, meaningful, truthful life, is actually possible and it actually works. That's the thing. That's the optimistic thing. You know, it's not so bad to say to people, look, we've got a real problem here. It's no joke. It's a dead serious problem. It's the fragility of your life and hell all balled up into one thing. But that's okay, because there's an antidote to it. There's something you can do about it, and you could start today. And, well, that's what I try to detail out in 12 Rules for Life and in my lectures online as well. And I believe it to be the case. As pessimistic as I am about the nature of human beings and our capacity for atrocity and malevolence and betrayal and and laziness and inertia and all those things, I think we can transcend all that and set things straight. And I think that people can literally start today. So, and you know, I've had thousands of people write me now and, and, and thousands of people talk to me as well, because it's up in those numbers now. And they're saying, well, look, I've been watching your YouTube videos and listening to, to the information that you're providing. And I have decided to start putting my life together. So I, I tried. I've been trying really hard for the last three or four months, and it's really working. You know, I'm getting along better with my girlfriend, and maybe we're getting married, and I have a job now, and I'm pursuing it, and I'm out of my nihilistic pit of despair. And, you know, thank God for that. What a lovely thing to hear from people.
0: So... Hooray. Hooray, yeah. Well, I mean, in, in, your wor- in your work, in your lectures, and in this book, you, you look to myths um, and stories from around, around the world, but all, you know, primarily from the Bible, you did a whole lecture on the Old Testament to provide, and you use these to provide a framework for a meaningful life. I'm curious, you know, we're, we live in a sort of post, you know, a secular age as uh, it's been called, do you think it's possible to chart a meaningful life without resorting to religious or mythical stories? And if not, why not?
1: No, I don't believe so. Because the story of a meaningful life is a religious story by definition. So no, it's not possible. People have oriented themselves with stories forever. And the greatest stories are about the proper way to orient yourself in life and the deeper they are the more accurate they are let's say and the deeper they are the more they move into the territory that is religious in nature what religious means essentially in the final analysis is something like profound or deep or eternal and there are eternal truths that are necessary to to it, it's necessary to live by eternal truths it's an eternal truth that life is suffering it will never go away that that truth and it's an eternal truth that living in truth and living responsibly is the proper antidote to that and and when you talk about things at that level of generality let's say and and applicability and depth then you're in the religious domain like it or not now you might say well does that have anything to do with god that's a separate question i would say and and well i think you can you can you can have a reasonable difference of opinion about that. But the religious is part of human experience. It's part of everyone's experience. It's it's what you experience when you listen to a particularly moving piece of music, or when you're deeply affected in a in a play or at a movie, or even by something that someone tells you, or when you're deeply engrossed in your life, something engaging that you're that you're actively, um, something meaningful that you're actively engaged in. These are all religious experiences, and, and and they're part of the instinctual landscape of human beings. It isn't even a question. We know this. You can evoke mystical experiences in the lab. It's part and parcel of the of the human condition. Now, we don't know the metaphysical significance of that, but I would say it's a bit too early to say that, it's, that there's none. You know, I do believe that the appropriate way to con- con- conceive of human beings is that we're part— material and, and mortal and finite and part immaterial and and metaphysical and divine. I, I believe that's the most accurate way to think about human beings. And I also know that the cultures that are predicated on that view of the human being are the ones that work. You know, when you interact with yourself, if you treat yourself in part as if you were a, a transcendent being capable of much more than you are currently managing. If you treat the people around you like that and you act like that in the world, you'll be radically successful in your endeavors. Everyone loves to be treated like, like that. And perhaps it's because that's the way that they really are.
0: So make sure to see if I'm getting you. You think that or you're suggesting that we need to tap into a meaning that's outside or external to us cuz like you know you talk about nietzsche nietzsche you know said with the death of god we have to create our new values right our own meaning right become the ubermensch is that
1: possible no, no. i don't i don't think so see you asked me at the beginning of this conversational string whether it was possible for us to to live com- in a completely secular manner without let's say returning to the religious depths, and that was Nietzsche's suggestion that we do so, that we discover our own values or create them. But he had just started to work out that idea in the few short years before he died. I think the psychoanalysts criticized that idea to death by discovering that there were forces that operated within us that are not under our control. I don't think that you can create your own values. I think you can co-create them but a huge part of it is discovery. You know, if you you can't make something in your life meaningful if it isn't meaningful, you can't force that on yourself. You have to discover it. You know, cuz I could say to you, well why don't you watch your life for the next month and notice when what you're involved in is deeply meaningful. Just notice it. As if you don't control it or understand it and then Strive to start doing more of that. And what you'll find is that you have to discover it. You can't make it happen. It sort of comes upon you rather than being something that you can command.
0: So what I guess what you're we can get into the rules, what the 12 rules do, and of course, this list isn't exhaustive. I guess it sets up the, the parameters for you for you to discover that meaning, right? It doesn't force it, but it sets the the, the groundwork for you to actually have those meaningful experiences well, in your life. Well,
1: it also, it also helps explain that that's what's happening. You know, so we could look at it this way. So I believe that the experience of meaning is an instinct. And you could think about it as the ordering instinct. It, it's more like the balancing instinct, but we'll start with ordering. There's a lot inside of you that needs to be ordered and set straight. Like you're a collection of motivations and emotions and thoughts and and proto actions and desire desires. Well I suppose those are the same as motivations. You're a loose collection of all those things. And something has to bring all of that into a functioning order. And the experience of deep engagement, the experience of meaning, I think, is the manifestation of the instinct that orders you. And it orders you and it orders your family and it orders the world, the broader world as well. And that instinct isn't some secondary consequence of some more important biological function, let's say. It is it is that very function. And I think we know enough about neuroscience now. I think we know enough about how the brain operates to just make that statement categorically. So my hypothesis has been, and this is this is not a fully original hypothesis, it's based on the work of neuroscientists whose research I know well and respect greatly, very hard-headed people. They believe, for example, that the left hemisphere is specialized for operation in explored territory and that the right hemisphere is specialized for operation in unexplored territory. Or... Th- Or that the left hemisphere handles things that have been routinized and practiced and the right hemisphere handles things that are novel. Well, you need to practice things. You need to know what you're doing and you have to have a place where that works. So that would be explored territory or or order or routine. And so part of your brain works well there. But then that's surrounded always by things that you don't understand. And so there's another part of your brain that has to work with the things you don't understand. And the sense of meaning occurs when you get those two systems working properly together so that you're partly stable and secure and operating where you know what's going to happen next and it's going to be something that you want. But also expanding your competence at the same time and pushing yourself and stretching yourself so that if things shift on you, then you're going to be ready and prepared. And that's a deep instinct. That's the instinct of meaning, as far as I can tell. And it's, it's an unerring guide to proper action in the world. And see, we've lost faith in the idea of meaning, intrinsic meaning, but I think that's a big mistake. I, th- I think it's a big mistake. I don't think it's warranted by the facts.
0: So let's get into some of your specific rules. The first rule, you ask readers to consider the lobster. What can a giant sea bug teach us about living a meaningful life?
1: Well, it can teach us something very profound about life itself. You know, one of the criticisms that's thrown forward very commonly today by the postmodern neo Marxist social constructionist types who believe that human beings don't have any real nature and that everything is only a construction of the social world is that the observation that animals live in hierarchical structures and have for a third of a billion years. So the idea that the patriarchy, let's say, is somehow a cultural construction is preposterous nonsense. It's an idea that has no bearing, no grounding whatsoever in the facts of the matter. Now, the particulars of a human hierarchy can be shaped by cultural forces, clearly, but the fact of hierarchical organization is something unspeakably ancient it's so ancient that even these giant sea insects that you described, the lobsters, the crustaceans, from whom we separated about a third of a billion years ago in the evolutionary climb forward, they live in hierarchies as well. And the same neurochemical systems mediate their behavior in the hierarchies that mediate our behavior in our hierarchies. So one of the amazing things, this amazing demonstration of biological continuity is that if a lobster is fighting with another lobster for a position in a hierarchy and he loses, then he'll make himself small and 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 crouch down and collapse physically and run off and hide and won't fight again. But if you give him antidepressants, to oversimplify slightly... If you give him antidepressants, then he'll stand up straight and go out and fight again. And the reason I wrote about that is because it's it's definitive proof, and, and not the only source, by the way, that existence itself, social existence itself, is deeply hierarchical. And that your hierarchical position governs your posture. There's a reciprocal relationship between the two, and your emotional well-being. And so Knowing how to conduct yourself in a hierarchical relationship, in hierarchical relationships, is extremely important. And one thing you can do is improve your posture. If things aren't going well for you if, you, if you feel put down and victimized, and if people are picking on you, it might be that you're broadcasting the wrong signals. And to stand up straight, well, that starts to regulate your nervous system right then and there. And to stand up straight and face the world forthrightly means that people will treat you with more respect and you can get a virtuous spiral developing. And so it's an injunction to paying attention to how you hold yourself in the world and an explanation of why that's deeply, deeply important and not merely a consequence of some sociological process. So that's rule one.
0: We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. All right, an often overlooked part of your wardrobe is your underwear, but if your underwear doesn't fit right, you're going to be uncomfortable all day. There's chafing, it rides up, you have to adjust yourself. Saks Underwear understands that. That's why they come up with the most comfortable, supportive designs so you can work out, go about your day without the need to constantly adjust. Big fan of Saks, love their kinetic boxer brief when I work out. Saks Underwear has the ballpark pouch, which is a series of internal mesh panels that keeps everything in place. No more chafing when you're, especially this comes in really handy during those hot, humid Oklahoma summers when you're working out in the garage. Gear Patrol, name Saks' Kinetic Boxer Reef, the most notable new fitness product of the year. And Gear Institute rated their Kinetic 2 one Run Short, the best in class for comfort and support. You gotta try Saks Underwear to see what a difference wearing the right pair can make. You can find Saks Underwear at Saxunderwear.com. That's Saks with two X's. S-A-X-X Underwear.com. Pick up a few pairs today at Saxunderwear.com. Also buy HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes and pre measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. No more time consuming meal planning or grocery shopping. HelloFresh makes it easy. To cook delicious, balanced meals for less than ten dollars a meal, just choose delivery day and everything gets sent right to your door in a recyclable insulated box. And everything's pre-measured, so you don't have to do anything or prepare anything. Just follow the instructions, you make your food. There's three plans to choose from, including classic, veggie, and family, so there's something for everyone. Plus, there are lots of one-pot recipes for seriously speeding cooking and minimal cleanup. Look forward to your HelloFresh box delivery as the highlight of your week, knowing dinner just got that much easier. My family's a big fan of HelloFresh. A few of my favorite meals: their burgers are always good. They've always tried different spins on the burger. My favorite is the Frisco Cheddar Burger. Pan-fried burger. Then you make these cheddar crisp in the oven. You put it on. Super delicious. Pork tacos with pineapple. Really good. They've had some great stir fries. Fantastic. And it's been a great way to introduce new foods to our kids. They're more willing to try it because it came in the mail. I know it's weird, but it works. If you want to try HelloFresh at a discount, got an offer for you. You can get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh by visiting HelloFresh.com and use code MANLINESS30. Again, that's HelloFresh.com code MANLINESS30 for $30 off your first week of Hello Fresh. And now back to the show. Yeah, but what do you do? I mean, cuz it suffering these status defeats, right? Over and over again. It creates a vicious cycle. It just it causes you to do things that actually hurt you more in the long run. How do you find it in you when you if say you someone's listening to this and they've just I mean, they're they feel like a loser, right? How do they find it in them to stand taller and kind of face the world and fight the world when they've they've suffered those status defeats over and over again?
1: Well, I think I would say that much of the rest of the book is about that, about what you can do to put yourself together. I mean, th- the first thing I would say is that it's it's a very dangerous thing to construe yourself as a particularized victim. I mean, people people definitely encounter defeats over and over again. I would say that's even part of life. Hopefully, you can learn from them. And you can stop making the same mistake over and over. I would say, well, like rule, I think it's rule eight is tell the truth or at least don't lie. That's a really good place to start. If you're suffering continual defeats, there's a high probability that you're not saying the things that you need to say and you're not living your life in an integrated and, and and what would you say, an integrated and forthright manner. There's things that you're leaving undone. Now, I know sometimes people find themselves in terrible situations and everything that's happening around them is arbitrary and unfair, but that's very rare. It's very rare that people are in a situation that's so terrible that there isn't something they're doing that's making it worse. And so, you know, rule two is treat yourself like you're someone who's worth helping. Well, that's a good attitude to adopt to yourself and to adopt with regards to yourself. And you might start to think about what it would mean to help yourself. So we have this program online called the self-authoring suite, and there's one component of it helps you write an autobiography so that you can figure out where you are and how you got there. That's helpful. Another component helps you analyze your personality, faults, and virtues so you can figure out who you are. And a third component helps you write a plan for the future. You might say, well, if your life isn't going the way you want it to, then start to think about what you want. What do you want from your friends? What do you want from your family? What do you want from your intimate relationships? How are you going to educate yourself? What are your career goals? How are you going to handle the temptations of drugs and alcohol and other forms of temptations? I mean, If you were to take care of yourself properly, how would you put your life together across those dimensions? What would your vision for yourself look like three to five years down the road if you were taking care of yourself? And rule three is make friends with people who want the best for you. Well, that's another thing that you can put straight, you know, if you're are surrounding yourself with people who are happy when you're defeated and unhappy when you're successful, even if they call themselves your friends, perhaps even if they call themselves your family, is you should step away from people like that because they're not looking out for what's best in you. You have every right and even an ethical responsibility to surround yourself with people who are going to be happy when good things happen to you for good reasons. And there's lots of things you can do. I mean, one of the things that I've suggested to people is that they clean up their rooms instead of protesting in the street and that's become a bit of an internet meme <laughs> and you know if 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 things aren't going well for you then i would say start fixing the little things that are in front of you that you could fix and don't stop and see what happens try it for a year try it for 2 years really dedicate yourself to it quit lying and saying things that make you weak and sort out what you have right in front of you that you could fix. And and th- that can remove the bitterness, too. You can at least run it as an experiment. You say, well, I'm not going to be bitter and nihilistic for a year. I'm really going to hit this hard. I'm going to make a goal. I'm going to develop a vision. And I'm going to play the game as hard as I can for a year. And then I'll reevaluate. It's like, well, that's a good plan, man. Yeah, That'll help. So, yeah,
0: fixing those small things is a way to increase competency, power, You know, if we're making competency equal power, I think there's a Nietzsche quote like "Joy is the feeling of power increasing." Right? Joy is the feeling of competency increasing. So as you clean your room and do others little small things, you start to feel better about life.
1: Well, they're also not so small. You know, like if you live in a house that's really chaotic. You know your your parents are alcoholics, and you're you know an overgrown child, and the place is a filthy hellhole, and everybody's aiming down and there's always carping and bitterness and resentment everywhere. You try to clean up your room in a place like that, you'll find that there's nothing small about it at all. It's really hard. It's really difficult. It'll take a lot out of you. You'll you'll face unbelievable opposition from the people around you, and you'll have to fight through that too. So these things that people think are small, like sorting out their own household, it's like, that's not small, man. That's really hard. It's really hard and if you get good at that if you get so that you can put your room in put yourself in order and then put your room in order and then put your household in order like you're well on the way to being unstoppable
0: i want to go back to that idea that rule of speaking the truth right and you you did you said that in reference to you know figuring out where you are now in life and using you know the self authoring tools that you have helped you do that how do you what's the advice you give to people to ensure they're actually depicting reality as it is because we're story mm, we don't think we're storytelling we're storytelling animals. So we could say the story, well, I'm here because of you know such and such thing, and I'm a victim, Blah 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 blah, but yeah, you ignore the things that you contributed
1: well, okay, so you've got two questions there. one is right. how do you how do you know that what you're saying is the truth? and the second is, how do you test the stories that you tell yourself? right? And those are both really good questions. So let's start with the first one. I don't think you can know if you're telling the truth, but because who knows the truth, right? The truth is, is in some sense, is an unreachable goal. But one thing you can do, and you can do this right away, is you can stop saying things you know to be false. So the chapter is actually called Tell the Truth or at least don't lie. And I would say, well, it's very difficult to have your vision clear enough so that you can see the truth. But by the same token, virtually everyone knows when they're lying, at least some of the time, and could stop doing that. And that's good enough. If you stop saying things that you know to be lies, then you'll start clarifying your vision and you'll get better and better at perceiving the truth even though you'll never get you'll never get to the point where you where you have it in your grasp. Right, It's an ever-receding goal. And then with regards to the story that you tell yourself, well, this is what's made me into a, a pragmatist, technically speaking, of the William James C.S. Purse type. What's the purpose of memory, people ask? Well, it's to remember the past. So that's the wrong answer. The purpose of memory is to help you stop doing the stupid things you did in the past that hurt you. And so if you have an accurate representation of the past and its failures, then you won't repeat the failures into the future. You know, let's say you have a lot of resentment about women just for the sake of argument. You've had a lot of bad relationships and you have a lot of resentment about how women are and how they've treated you. And you have a theory about women and men and about their relationship in the world. And you keep telling yourself that theory and acting it out in the world. And all that happens is you have one bad relationship after another. It's like, well, clue in. There's something wrong with your theory. If you keep applying it and the and the same pathological things keep happening, then perhaps there's something wrong with you, the way you formulated the story. You know, and you can't complain about women. You know what I mean? Women is not a category that you get to complain about. Because women, for men, present a huge part of the challenge of life. And it's up to you to reconfigure yourself so that you can have a successful relationship with a woman. And if you don't, then you're wrong. It's as simple as that.
0: Right. It's like that f- saying, if everyone you meet's an a-hole, then you're probably the a-hole.
1: Well, you got to ask yourself at some point how much of it. And you, maybe you should hope that that's the case. Because if it's everyone else, well, good luck to you. But if it's just you... Well, you might be able to change that. You know, you you come out and make a statement. You say, every woman I've ever known has betrayed me. It's like, well, you know, you might ask yourself if there's a reason for that. Well, it's just the way women are. It's like, well, no, actually, it's just the way you are. It's either you or it's all women. So pure Occam's razor simplicity and humility would all suggest that you're the one with the problem. So. And if the world keeps slapping you in the face, at some point you have to wonder if if it's trying to tell you something. You ever see the movie Groundhog Day? Oh, it's it's one of my favorites. It's classic. Yeah, Groundhog Day is a great movie, and and that's that. The, Groundhog Day has the proper mythological structure. It's a religious movie about death and rebirth. It's brilliant. Well. If every if every one of your days is Groundhog Day, then it's time to wake the hell up.
0: Okay, so uh, I guess you know, when you tell your story, you figure that out. Maybe a heuristic to use would be question it. Like, you know, how could this not be true, or why why would I have this story? What other explanation would it be?
1: Well, well, it's it's if your life isn't what you would like it to be, then there's some possibility that the story you're telling yourself about it is wrong. You might as well just assume that. Why not assume that? It's like well, I don't have anything I want. Okay, well, maybe what you want is wrong. Or maybe the way that your theory about being in the world is incorrect. Your theory about yourself is incorrect. Your ideas about other people are incorrect. And that's why things aren't working out for you. There's a little section in the book. I took a, a piece from a T.S. Eliot play called The Cocktail Hour. And in that play, a woman approaches a psychiatrist at a, at a cocktail party and says, I need to talk to you for a minute. I'm having real serious problems. My life is not going well. I'm I'm suffering far too much. And I have this idea. I, I really hope there's something wrong with me and that you can help me figure out what it is. And the psychiatrist is sort of taken aback. And he says, well, why do you hope that there's something wrong with you? And she says, well, I'm having a terrible time of it. And if it's if there's something wrong with me, then maybe I can fix it. But if there's something wrong with the world and that's just how it is, well, then I don't see that I have any hope at all. And so that's, it's such an optimistic idea. It's echoed in the New Testament statement. Uh, you should take the log out of your own eye before you worry about the dust moat in your neighbor's eye. And th- that's also right. It's like, if, if your life isn't what it should be, then assume that it's your fault. Now, I know that's harsh because I know that people, the terrible things happen to people and, and they're often arbitrary. but. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's still the right way to face the world. Face the world as if the excess suffering that you're undergoing is your fault, and you could do something about it. And you'll find that there's more that you can do about it than you think. well, and this kind of ties into my next question, this idea of sacrifice that
0: you've lectured a lot about and you write you know a great deal about. I think in one of your lectures, you said that sacrifice is like the greatest human invention ever.
1: yeah, it's the discovery of the future. If you only live in the present like an animal then you have to do the next thing that's necessary whatever that happens to be but if you're a human being things are more complex because you have to do whatever needs to be done next in a way that doesn't interfere with the future or maybe even makes the future better and what that often means is that you don't get you don't get to do exactly what you want right now you don't get to pursue your impulses because You're going to pay a price for that tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. Instead, you often have to give up something of value now to obtain something of higher value later. And that's basically the sacrificial motif. These archaic people who were sacrificing something of value to to God were acting out the idea that you had to give up something of value in the present so that you could establish a better future. And that's really the motif of work, right? Because work is the sacrifice of the moment for the benefit of the future, and the funny thing is, the strange thing is, is that sacrifice actually works. It actually pays off. You can, you actually can bargain with the future, which is well. I describe why that is in in great detail in in Twelve Rules for Life, but one of then you might ask yourself, and I also write about this. I believe it's in Rule Seven, which is do what is meaningful, not what is expedient. You have to sacrifice to get ahead. Well, what's, what does getting ahead mean? What would be the best possible ahead? Well, that's sort of conceptualized religiously in ideas like paradise or heaven. And then you might say, well, what is the ultimate sacrifice that you have to make in order to get ahead, to reach paradise or heaven? Well, you have to sacrifice yourself to what's good, essentially, something like that. You, you sacrifice everything weak that's a, everything about yourself that's weak to the good it's something like that and that's just accurate that's painful because you know people are generally not very well constituted they're not very mature they're they're not they're not very articulate they're not aiming very high and so when they start sacrificing parts of themselves they may find that there's a lot to burn off maybe almost everything but the end goal the end consequence of that, hopefully the aim that's being pursued is of sufficient grandeur to justify that self-immolation. That's the the phoenix, right? The phoenix bursts into flame, burns off everything that's old and is then reborn. That's a a symbol of the savior, the phoenix. And it's something you do to yourself. It's like everything old and dead about you, you want to let go of, let it burn off. It's painful but because it's alive but it's just dead wood you don't need it. That's part of the sacrifice of yourself.
0: Right. And it sounds like sacrifice is a skill. It's like something you have to learn and practice at.
1: It is a skill. There's no doubt about it. Part of the skill is setting your goal. Think well what so what would I say? What's a good goal? Well, let's start from the initial premises that life is dreadful suffering. Painted with malevolence. All right, so everyone can agree on that. That's a little harsh, but it seems accurate. Okay, fine, that's the baseline. All right, Now, now how do you solve that problem? Well, you have to embark upon an adventure that's so remarkable that it justifies that. So you can say to yourself, Jesus, this is rough, man. There's a lot of misery along with this, a lot of betrayal, a lot of malevolence it's like doesn't matter it's worth it you know and and you watch yourself in a week or a month and you'll see that there are times when you feel that way about your life you think man this is tough life is hard but boy it's really worth it so that's what you want you want a goal that makes your life worth it that's not the same as being happy that's a that hap the idea that you should pursue happiness that's for that's that's for children for naive children it's a foolish idea you want to instead Live your life in a manner that justifies its suffering. And and that's possible. You think that's worth it, man. I'm going to play this game. It's, It's a worthwhile game. And I would say I've been trying to conceptualize that in a very precise manner. Most recently, I would say, well, you're looking for meaning in your life. Well, it's simple. There's chaos to confront. There's order to establish and revivify. And there's evil to constrain. And that's enough meaning. You do those things that'll that'll justify the pain and suffering of your life, and it'll it'll turn you away from bitterness and resentment.
0: This kind of leads nicely into my next question: Is this like how do you deal manage the fact that sometimes your sacrifices don't turn out the way you hoped? I right? use the story of Cain and Abel kind of to highlight this. Cain offered a sacrifice too, for whatever reason it didn't get accepted, and he got super resentful about it. And I think that happens to in people's lives too. They they have a goal they make what they think are the requisite sacrifices for it and then it doesn't turn out the way they had hoped so how do you avoid that res- that resentfulness that when things don't work out the way you wanted
1: well generally if you're moving forward in some manner that's worthwhile and things don't work out precisely the way that you expected You'll have generally gained something as a consequence of the experience. You should be wiser. And what that means is that you might think, well, I didn't get my goal quite right. I wasn't aiming at exactly the right place and I didn't make precisely the right sacrifices. So then you try again. You you forgive yourself. You think, well, I, I gave it a good shot. It didn't work out, but I didn't get it quite right. And then you meditate and you talk to people you trust and you try to reconfigure your goal and you think, I must have got it wrong. Didn't work out. I must have got it wrong. I'll. Reconfigure my goal and I'll reconsider my sacrifices and I'll repeat the endeavor. And if you do that diligently, then your vision will become clearer and what you're aiming at will become better and the sacrifices you make will become more effective. So you think, I'm going to try this, I'm probably wrong, and I'm going to have a lot to learn, but I can learn. And then it's a self correcting process across time. And to become bitter about it, the failure, to become bitter about it is. Another form of failure, it's, it's a form of meta failure, I would say, because it, it it undermines your faith in the process itself. And then you've really failed. If you've just failed, well, that's not such a big deal, man. People People aim at something and miss quite frequently, although they generally learn something by doing it. It's like, aim again. If that doesn't work, aim again. If that doesn't work, aim again. Maybe you have to aim a little lower, you know? aim at something you're more likely to hit. And maybe your goal was grandiose or maybe your discipline was insufficient. So you have to reconfigure and, and re-implement and, and try again.
0: So, and this is the long term. And that's a good, that's another question I have is you've kind of hit on this a bit is how do, let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, I want to start doing this. I want to start cleaning my room, yep. but they don't see the benefit right away, you know, a week, month. And, things just feel like how do you keep going when you don't see they that will. immediate Right. you they think they see, do you think they will
1: they will see the benefit they will see the benefit if they're if they're in the game properly if they open themselves up to to the possibility of transformation and they and they make the sacrifices properly let's say if they don't cuz you can't go in your room and say well look i'm going to clean this up and if my life isn't 100% better in a month then to hell with it like that's not the right attitude the right. right attitude is look everything around me is quite a mess and i'm going to work diligently to improve it in the ways that i can improve it and i'm going to stick this out and i'm going to watch very carefully and i'm going to be grateful for small benefits that come my way and i'm going to be attentive and i'm going to see them it's not you you, you can't there's a there's a statement in the new testament that i wrote about a fair bit in 12 rules for life it says you cannot test god it's something that Christ tells Satan when he's being tempted. You cannot put God to the test. It's like you can't clean up your room and then sit there with your hands crossed, with your arms crossed, and say, okay, you know, tap, tap, tap. When is the reward coming? That's not how it works. You have to, you have to deeply assume that if things are not working out for you, that you're at fault. And then you have to work to improve those things you know you could improve, and then you have to be... I would say humbly grateful when things start slowly to go your way. And that'll work. But it's not, you can't have the attitude, well, now I'm finally going to get what I deserve, you know. It's about time things came around my way. Right. That's not going to work.
0: And I guess another attitude to have is sort of understand that, you know, metaphorically, things are going to tend towards chaos or entropy. And so your job is just to constantly keep things in order. Constantly keep cleaning your room. It's never, it's never going to stop.
1: No. And well, but I, you can, you, if you're lucky, if you're fortunate, I mean, sometimes you can be in a situation where there's so much chaos that, that your boat is sinking and you can barely bail fast enough to stay afloat. You know, that happens to people from time to time in their life, but often you're in a situation where if you put in a decent effort, then you can get ahead of the chaos and start to make, not only to keep it at bay, but to start to establish habitable order. Look, I went to a restaurant, like when I was a kid, you know, I worked as a dishwasher when I was about 14. And it was a hard job. I mean, the first three weeks I was doing this, I was going to school and I was up till like three in the morning at this restaurant because I'd get so far behind in the dishes that I took me hours after my shift ended to, to get them all done. And I remember talking to my dad about two weeks into the job and I said, look, I'm, I'm like busting myself in half here and I can't keep up. I don't know if I can do this job. And, and my dad wasn't someone who was ever happy in the least if I quit, if I quit, you know, and he said, well, look, you know, maybe, maybe it's just, maybe no one could keep up. And I thought, well, maybe. And anyways, I stuck with it for about another week. And then the German chef who was kind of rough old guy finally came over. I guess he thought I'd passed my initiation test or something. And he showed me how to do it. He showed me how to organize the dishes and stack them and 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 organize my workplace so I could keep up. And then I could really keep up, you know, and then I actually got good at the job and I had quite a bit of spare time and I learned to be a short order cook. And I got along really well with the, the cooks and the bartenders and all the people that were in the restaurant. I really loved that because I, I got to work in an adult world, even though I was only 14. It was really good. But part of that was I took the damn job seriously. It was just a dishwasher's job, you know, but I took it seriously. And then, then all of a sudden it wasn't just a dishwasher's job. It was my bloody entry into the adult world. And I learned to cook and now I can, you know, and then I could cook. I could take care of myself. I got to be a good cook. And, you know, I had this kid walked into a restaurant about a month ago and the kid that was seating me he said, hey, I've been watching your videos and I wanted to thank you. And I said, well, why? What's been going on? He said, well, here I'm working at this restaurant. And in the last like six months, I decided to really work hard at it, to work as hard as I could at it. He said, I got three promotions. He said, I can't believe it. It's like you have, there's lots right in front of you. The whole world is right in front of you. You might think, well, other people have more in front of them. It's like, well, maybe they do, but you've got more than you can manage right in front of you. If you took full advantage of it, it might be the gift that never stops giving. And, you know, you think, well, that's naive. You know, there's horrible places to work. It doesn't matter how hard you work and you really won't get rewarded and people will take advantage of you. It's like, well, if you're in a job like that, then you should find another job. But in most places, and I've, I've had a lot of jobs, like I've probably had 50 jobs and, and they've ranged from, well, from dishwasher to Harvard professor, which is a pretty good range. And my experience has been in 90% of those places, If you were honest and you worked hard and you were reliable and you weren't above the job, then doors would open to you and a lot faster than you think. And I truly believe that that's the case. It's especially the case in our culture because our culture is actually based on confidence. And if if you're reliable and honest and a hard worker and your eyes are open and you're grateful for what you've got, you can advance very rapidly. And I've seen that over and over and over in my, in my clinical practice. You know, I've had lots of clients, uh, they come to me and they're doing okay. They've got a decent job, but they're not happy with it. Maybe they're not making enough money and they can't buy a house. And so we put together a plan, three-year plan. It's like, okay, we're going to triple your damn salary in three years. But you're, you know, it's going to take work. Get your resume together. Get some more education. Figure out what you want. Start applying for other jobs figure out how to do an interview and push. And like people move fast. It's amazing. So, and it's not like, it's not hard. It's hard. But if you don't waste time being, well, if you don't waste time, wasting time and being bitter, you can put a tremendous amount of effort into what you're doing. And then there'll be people around who are really interested in finding someone who wants to put effort into what they're doing and they will open the door for you. They will provide you with opportunities more than you know what to do with.
0: Yeah. Human beings value competency across the board.
1: Well, sensible human beings right. value competence. And if and there are, are lots of people like that around, and they're looking around to see, to find other competent people, because it's kind of rare. And like the people I know that have been hyper competent, you know, people who've established multiple businesses and sometimes multiple spectacularly successful businesses, one of the things they absolutely love and this is a place where i think capitalism entrepreneurial capitalism gets a bad rap they love finding young people who have who are motivated and giving them opportunities and helping them develop their careers it's it's one of the primary sources of gratification for people who've developed successful careers you think well they're greedy and they want everything for themselves it's like that's a psychopath that person like a solid competent reliable entrepreneurial creator is so happy when he or she stumbles across someone who wants to be competent that you can hardly believe it. And they'll do everything they can to help them build their careers. That's the real world. It's not the cynical world of the of the radical leftist resentful imagination.
0: Well, Jordan, there's a lot more we could talk about, but uh, where can people go to learn more about the book?
1: Well, they can go to my website, jordanbpeterson.com. They can go to my YouTube channel. There's lots of lectures there, including some that are directly about the book. There's an audio version because people are accustomed to listening to me lecture. And so there was a fair demand for the audio version. So I recorded that. They could try the self-authoring program. It's it's very inexpensive. It works even if you do a really bad job of it. <laughs> so that's what I encourage people to do is like pick up the program, write your autobiography, write Like lay out your faults and your virtues, make a plan for the future and do it badly. It'll be way better than not doing it at all. So those are all possibilities.
0: Fantastic. Well, Jordan Peterson, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks very much for the opportunity. It was a pleasure talking to you again. Good luck with your podcast and with what you're doing.
0: My guest today was Jordan B. Peterson. He is the author of the book 12 Rules of Life. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at jordanbpeterson.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is/rulesoflife, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the podcast, I've got something out of it. Appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.